uh, I asked him, what should I say? And he said, well, the best thing pertaining to the message is that he has two grown children that seem to be doing all right right now. So uh, he feels good about that. And somebody came at the table while I was briefly visiting with him said, gosh, there's a great turnout today. And he goes, that's because there's a whole bunch of guys in here that have a bond hearing later today. <laughs> so that's Chris. Um, he takes what he does seriously. He sees this as a ministry. Um, one of the amazing things that he was the recipient of the um, Dunavant Public Service Award for the most outstanding uh, public official in Shelby County for this year, uh, elected by his peers, uh, a man who deeply loves his wife, uh, Susie, uh, his children, John and Amanda, and um, loves the Lord, has a great passion for encouraging men to walk with Jesus. So I'm excited. Thank you, Chris, for being here. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who we can remember as leaders who speak the word to us. You tell us in Hebrews 13, 7 to imitate their lives and imitate their faith. We thank you for a man that loves your word and lives your word and is called as a redeemed sinner to present your word in the the courts before us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've drawn us together. We thank you for the food. We thank you for each other. But most of all, we thank you for you, Lord. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm looking out across the crowd and I'm thinking we're going to talk about fathers raising their children. I think some of y'all, we may just start talking about raising your grandchildren. We are going to talk about that. Uh, A lot of people think that your child rearing stage of life is past once you get them out out of the house. But that's not really true. You'll find that's not really true because they come back and they bring more with them. That's what uh, Jerry Clower said. Uh, uh, One of my uh, favorite guys when I was in my 30s was a guy named Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was a seminary professor and a psychologist and and, uh, taught me a lot. I listened to a lot of his tapes. Back then we had tapes. You know, we don't have tapes these days. But uh, he said, you don't really know what you did as a parent until you see what your grandchildren turn out to be because basically what kind of kids are you raising to be parents? So I'm going to be looking. Um, I have a grandchild who's six and one that's eight. And until they get out of school and when they're in their 20s, that's the only time I'll really know that I did get a job as a parent because it's my job to pass that on from generation to generation. Um, I was uh, really struck by the fact uh, of something that my teacher said when I was in second grade, uh, my Sunday school teacher. And I usually didn't pay a whole lot of attention in second grade, but my dad was a, a kind of a harsh taskmaster. So I was always looking at ways to defend myself and say it was somebody else's fault. And, and that's kind of the government strategy now. It's, it's not doing things right, but finding out who to blame when things go wrong, uh, unfortunately. And she was reading the Ten Commandments to us, and she started out with the First Commandment and the Second Commandment, third, and all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, uh, it said uh, that I'm a jealous God, and this was Exodus 20, verse 5, and I'm going to visit the sins of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then start on with Commandment 5 and 6 and 7. And I was just listening, wait a minute. And I kind of stopped in second grade and said, what, what, that wasn't a commandment. She said, no, but it's in there, so we read it. 
I said, what, what is that all about? And, and she says, well, that just means that, you know, that we need to be good. And, and, and I said, no, no, no. What had happened to me was I'm a child of alcoholics from four or five generations, and I, and I really can't drink. Now, I work with, with uh, people who uh, have alcohol and drug problems as part of what I do, and I was in a meeting last night with TLAP, which is a, a big committee where we're trying to straighten out a bunch of lawyers and judges that go off the reservation, use drugs, and, and have alcohol problems, sex addiction problems, things like that. And I was meeting with them, and we were just talking about ways to work all these things out, and, and we had a lot of recovering alcoholics in the meeting, and I was looking and I was realizing that my, both my grandfathers died of alcoholism before uh, I was born. My mother's father was a candy salesman who died of a stroke uh, because he was an alcoholic and just ravaged his body. My father's father, uh, he used to tell me stories when I was growing up that he would when he was seven, seven, eight, nine years old, he was driving a pickup truck on the phone at, on the farm at age nine. I did too. I, when I was 12 on the farm, I would go drive and pick up the babysitter and bring her home because my parents were going out and they asked me to pick up the babysitter, 12. <laughs> so I was, I was driving tractors and pickups when I was a kid. But uh, he would, my father would have to go out and find his dad somewhere on the farm. who He was drunk in a ditch somewhere and find him because it started raining. When it started raining, he's supposed to go find his dad. Otherwise, his dad sometimes would just sleep in a in soybean field, drunk. And so I decided, well, I better not drink because I've got that gene. You know, and we discussed a lot of that stuff at our dinner last night. And, and, I, and I asked them all about their dads because I knew he was going to be here today. All the coming out calls, their dads weren't around. But I was, I was in second grade. I was eight years old at Grace St. Luke's Church. And I was talking to my Sunday school teacher. And I said, why would God blame me for something that happened before I was born. Because I was all into, I don't want to take the blame. And that was Exodus 20, verse 5. And then there was some extra stuff in that verse that said, well, but, uh, you know, for, um, I'll visit the sins of the fathers and their children, uh, of those that hate me, but those that love me. And I said, well, okay, so I don't hate God. But then I keep reading in Exodus 34, 7, on about uh, 14 chapters, and it said this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sounds great so far. But then it says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then that all the stuff about, that's just for people that hate me, but people that, no, that was it. He visits the sins of the fathers on the children and their children's children. And I started realizing that my grandfathers, who I have never met, uh, I'm suffering because of what they did. The, their sins are being visited on me. Well, so I was having a hard problem with that. because you know, And I asked my dad about that. He says, well, I don't know that Bible stuff. So you know, I just kind of forgot about it. And then I graduated from high school. I started seeing the problems that uh, some of my friends were having. Uh, because they really basically were raised without a dad. When I was in 10th grade at MUS, my, my dad borrowed a lot of money, sent me to MUS. Uh, he, he, he was a farmer, and he borrowed money all the time, and I didn't realize the tuition was, was, high, was high back then. Uh, uh, and I didn't realize his sacrifice in sending me to MUS, but, but he did. And, and, and I was in class, and I was a class of 69, which is a very troubled high school class. I was a child of the 60s, and 
uh, a lot of our class, I had a class of like 39 boys. It, it just wasn't a very big class. Well, by the time I was 36, about a fourth of the class had died. Alcoholism, two suicides, one guy shot and killed by the police holding his parents hostage. They were going to school with Medium U.S. And I'm thinking, what's the deal here? And I started realizing that all their dads, I'm not saying Medium U.S. is a bad school, it's a great school, but all their dads were, uh, were gone. I mean, they worked all the time. They were never home. And I had one kid, I was really mad at my mother and my dad because they wouldn't let me go to this party where there's going to be a lot of drinking. I said, oh, I'm not going to drink. They wouldn't let me go. And I was mad. I was complaining to a guy at school who's in 11th grade. And he started crying. And this was a really tough kid. And he started crying. He said, you know, my dad doesn't care. He doesn't even know that I'm coming home tonight. So at least you have a dad that cares about you. And I'm thinking, well, but yeah, but I'd really like for him to, you know, to let me know what I'm doing. And I started realizing the heart, you know, a lot of my kids, I noticed I go uh, in, in high school, I go over the houses, and their wives were like almost not too much older than me. You know, there's the second or the third wife, trophy wife that they're married to. You know, I started realizing the problems that things cause. So I took psychology in college. I majored in psychology. I was trying to understand all this stuff with families. And I became an attorney because there were no Christian divorce lawyers that I could see. Uh, and, and I started as a divorce lawyer. I started getting all the divorces from like, you know, our church, First Evan, Bellevue. They'd send me their divorce. Because, you know, I was a Christian divorce lawyer. And Christians still get divorced. And so I would handle those divorces. And it would cause me a lot of problems because I'd have a guy and a girl sitting there in my, in my law office. And they're quoting scripture to each other. And they're wanting to get a divorce. And I remember one particular group, the guy was saying, you know, she just won't keep the house clean. You know, it's just a mess. I come home. I bring friends home. House is a mess. You know, and she says, well, you know, and he says, she's not the Proverbs 31 woman. He starts thinking, just quoting, you know, she goes to the gates and praises her husband and has these businesses. and So she does that okay. So she comes back and she says, well, you know, the guy, you know, it says here that her 10 handmaidens get up and oil their lamps. If he gives me 10 handmaidens, I'll have a great house. You know, you know, you know, back and forth, back and forth. I had a guy complaining about his, uh, his wife, uh, you know, saying that, you know, she, she really just is not, she's getting all these Botox injections and, and all, spending all this money because they're in financial problems. And she says, well, you know, the Bible says you're supposed to present me to God without a wrinkle or blemish. And so, you know, but I mean, the thing is with the Christians, they knew the scripture, but they were using it against each other and they weren't really, you know, and it really started upsetting me seeing that. So as a lawyer, I, I did divorce and crime because I didn't see any Christian attorneys doing that. In the Bible, Satan was the accuser, and Jesus was our defense lawyer. So that's what I was going to do. And as my practice built up, I started realizing in my criminal cases that all the women would come in to hire me to represent their sons and their daughters. There were no men that would come. Uh, there weren't any dads there. And so I'd go to court, and we'd have probation hearings, and there wouldn't be any fathers uh, that would show up to testify for their 20-year-old kid who is in criminal trouble. So I started trying to get the dads there, and I realized there were no dads. We'd have, we have a pre-sentence report that shows the families. There'd be you know, five kids, six or seven brothers, sisters. Wouldn't be any dads. And I started realizing, and this has nothing to do with race. I mean, all my Hispanic defendants had no father. All of my white defendants, had, all my African-American defendants had no father. I had to prosecute this case at uh, this restaurant in, uh, on Jackson, where uh, some people were killed and these uh, Laotian folks did it. And I said, wait a minute, I've never prosecuted an Asian person. 
Uh, but they were all sons of American GIs over in Thailand and Laos during the Vietnamese War that were born over there illegitimate. They were outcasts because they were part American. And so they came over to this country, but they had no dads. And I started seeing this huge pattern. Well, if you look at the uh, last page of this handout that's in the middle of your page, the very last page, I've printed out for you the juvenile court statistics for last year. And then we're going to see a video in just a minute. I'm responsible for y'all being on this side. I'm sorry about that. But this is uh, what we call our intake, living arrangements of child and juvenile court. Last year, 15,000 kids went through juvenile court in Memphis. Now, that may seem like a lot to you, but last year we had 156,000 prosecutions of crime in Memphis. I mean, in Shelby County last year. It's a, our, our DA's office is the largest law firm in the state of Tennessee. Um, and looking at the living arrangements of the children that went through juvenile court, you'll see that 59% lived with their mother only. 15% uh, had neither parent in home of relatives. And it says here 7%, only 7% of these 15,000 kids had two parents at home. Now, what you don't realize about that is that's traffic tickets. If your 15-year-old gets a traffic ticket, they go to juvenile court. In other words, when we're, and, and we're talking about violent crime, there are no dads. So I became a prosecutor, and I, this was so remarkable to me in the DA's office that when my dad died, I, I went to the DA's office, that I started keeping a list of dads that testified, and every, every week, every day I'd have about five probation hearings as a prosecutor, uh, and you figure maybe 20 a week times 50 weeks a year, 1,000, I'd hear about 1,000 probation hearings a year. That first year, I had two dads show up out of 1,000. After eight years, I had eight fathers. After, excuse me, after 12 years in the DA's office, I had eight fathers testify out of 12,000 probation hearings. There just were no dads. So I kept that list. And I've been a judge now 20 years, and I've had five more in 20 years. Five dads testify. Uh, I had one guy who uh, was there. He killed a guy because he had a Chicago Bulls coat that he wanted, so he just killed him and took the coat. And the jury's deciding whether or not he got the death penalty because he'd just gotten out of prison for like eight or nine armed robberies and using that as an aggravating factor to get the death penalty. And the defense lawyer brought his dad to court to testify after he'd been convicted of murder to the jury to please let my son live because, you know, he's my son. And he put him on the stand, and I'm thinking, I've never had a father testify in a death penalty case because nobody, they, none of them have fathers. And he said, uh, he asked, introduced himself, said, where you live? And he said, I, you know, I live in New Orleans. And, and, and he said, well, do you know this man here? And he said, yes, he's my son. He said, how long have you known him? He said, I met him this morning for the first time. And he started crying and said, please let my son live to the jury so that I can get to know him and visit him when he's doing life in prison. Because he left the mom. That was the fifth dad <laughs> of the five. They just are not there. So I revisit these verses in Exodus that the sins of the fathers are visited on their children and their children's children. And it's not saying they're going to punish me for what my grandfathers did. What they're saying is, it's just a fact of life that because of what they did and didn't do, I'm going to suffer for it. It's not that I'm going to be punished. They're a reality. So if we do not raise our kids, we're going to be punished. Now, I'm not saying that you guys are going to send kids to prison, but I'm talking about in my marriage counseling, in, in my, my divorce practice, in, in 
doing work here at the church with people having marriage problems, you look at folks and you, you ask them, well, tell me about your family that you grew up in, your dad, your mom. You know, our legislators are having, that have problems. They never grew up in a stable family home. You look at our major criminals through the, you know, Adolf Hitler, his dad died when he was 13 and he dropped out of school in 10th grade, Adolf Hitler. Ted Bundy never knew who his dad was. His mother raised him. He thought his mother was his sister and that his mother was dead. And she told him later on, no, I'm really your mother to Ted Bundy. Genghis Khan. I mean, we just go down through all the major criminals and you'll hear somebody shot up a school on the news. You know, they shot up a school and killed five kids and all that. And you'll see mom on TV. You'll, you won't see the dad. You talk to guys who are homosexuals. And I have to deal with a lot of homosexuality in criminal court. They won't tell you about their dad because they didn't have a loving dad in their home. They just didn't. They don't have that example. Um, and so the sins of the fathers... God's not saying, I'm going to punish you for the sins. No, so the sins of the fathers are being visited on their children and their children's children. Not only the sons, but the daughters. So we're going to show this video. It's about a 12-minute video. It's a 60-minute... It's not a Christian thing. It's just a study that was done in Africa. Just to give you an example, if you would run it, please. Well, the thing that upsets me every time I see that video, and it's, I've had this since 2000, that was a 2000, uh, February 2000, since the 60 Minutes video, uh, is when they kill the elephant and the sister is there, and I'm reminded every time I have to sentence some young person to death, which I have to do, and I see all the, the mom and all the aunts and the sisters and grandma and great-grandma sometimes who's 50 in the back of the courtroom crying, and there's no men around except the person that he killed and the person who sent us to death. And it's so needless because all that kid needed was to have somebody, a role model in the family, to grow up. The testosterone thing is, is interesting. They don't allow, the government doesn't pay for studies, but they'll tell you if you talk to psychologists and people that have done biological studies, if you grow up, if you're a guy and you grow up in a home, or a girl, and you grow up in a home without a dad there, your testosterone level is higher. You're more likely to have kids. And it's God's way when we have wars of replacing all the dead men. You know, there's not a lot of men around. We have sex more. I mean, there's, a, there's reasons for that biology. But just sitting there, if you're a dad and you're just sitting in a living room at night, just sitting there in your chair, kid comes through, knocks over a lamp, and you say, you know, son, you or daughter, you, you need to settle down. Just being there changes the whole dynamics of that family. So it's not that you need to be some wizard of parenthood. You just need to be around. And so many guys think, well, it's my job to work, and so I'm going to pull 70, 80 hours a week. I'm going to make sure that we get to that club or we send them to this school or we buy this really nice car or this great house. And they think their job is to kill a great big animal and drive it back to the cave. And then that's the, that's the end of it, you know, that, that mom is supposed to take care of everything else. And, and our studies just do not bear that out because you need to actually come home at night and be sitting there. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot. Woody Allen is not my role model. But he says 95% of success is just showing up. And we have so few dads in the home. That government guy saying, well, we thought it was the right idea at the time. They had a, another African story, I'll tell you right quick. They had some lion prides when he had a famine. And there were, there were seven prides of lions, uh, about probably something like 90 or 100 lions altogether. And there was a famine, and they didn't know what to do. So they decided they would build a dock 
and they would throw dead animals off the, off the pier every so often because there was not a lot of game because the lions, they were worried the lions wouldn't have enough to eat. And they did that for five years, and then the rains came, and, 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 and so they stopped. And three years later, they checked to see how the prides were doing, and there were no prides. They had all died out. And the reason they died out was because the cubs had not learned to hunt. A cub, when they're six months old, they're weaned from their mom, and they learnt, they're taught to hunt. And they weren't taught to hunt because they just came to the pier and they just ate what was thrown on the ground and killed for them. And mature lions hunt for the pride uh, and sustain the pride at about five years. And they're just, they didn't know how to hunt. And so I'm looking at what the government is doing now. And it's not a political statement, but, you know, there's this thing going around, it takes a village to raise a child. No, it doesn't. It takes a mom and a dad. It takes a mom and a dad to raise a child. The village can't, and I say this often, if the government... Uh, if they're going to raise your children, they have the compassion of the IRS and they have the efficiency of the post office. <laughs> they cannot, government cannot raise your kids. And, and I'm having to try to raise about four or 500 kids a year and seeing them three times. I can't do that. I mean, I can make them take drug screens, but I can't make them not fail the screens. And so uh, we just need, dads, we need to be there. And we think, boy, we're really doing good. We've got this 60-hour-a-week an hour uh, a week job and we're pulling down the big figures and all that that's not helping you've got to actually when the kids come home from school you don't need to be there but that night you've got to be there you've got to be able to settle that down and be able to tend to business because the government right now is trying to basically make sure that dads aren't needed because we're sinning we are letting our families down and so the government is trying to step in I would just dare you just to go to Google or whatever your search engine is and put in predictors of poverty. You'll see 20 or 30 websites come up, predictors of poverty, and you'll start seeing all these things. The number one key prediction of poverty is whether or not you have parents who are married. That's the number one predictor. A child born from unmarried parents has six times, six times the likelihood of being growing up in poverty than someone who is born to married parents. That's just a fact of life and people don't like it. They want to try to explain it away, but that's just the truth. That's just the predictor. And we see that in criminal court all the time. Now, if you'll notice, after the government took the families, the fathers out of the family, they brought some big bulls in. I'm looking at a lot of you guys, you look like big bulls to me. I'm not saying you're supposed to go home and beat your kids or anything like that, but what you need to do is, I don't care if your child is 55 years old, you need to take care of it. You need to contact, just be in touch with them. Just be their dad. They're never going to grow up. You need to be their dad. They need to learn from you how to be a grandfather. If you're a grandfather, you need to get involved in their lives. Sexually, we're going to talk about daughters for a second. My psychologist, you know, the people we testify in court, they tell us this. A daughter's view of her father is her view of God. So if you talk, I don't know if you have a 30-year-old daughter Maybe a Christian, may not a Christian. Say, what do you think about God? And they'll start talking, well, here's what God appears to me. You know, a gal will probably say something like, well, you know, he looks like Charlton Heston, has a big beard, you know, uh, you know, kind of like Moses and Ten Commandments. You talk to a girl and she'll describe what God is or what she feels like God is to her, and that's her view of what her father was like when she was growing up. Is God somebody that's never around when she needs him? Is God somebody she just really doesn't know very well that really doesn't talk to her much? Because a lot of times as guys, we don't really talk to our daughters. We don't touch our daughters enough. 
We just don't. They're different than us. They're girls. We don't understand them. You know, we don't touch them. You got to make a point when you're walking by. If you have an eight-year-old daughter at a breakfast table, just when you walk by, just just put your hand on her head as you walk by. Just touch your daughter or something, not inappropriately. But I ta- I have so many girls that come through my courtroom as criminals, as victims, as witnesses, and they're never touched appropriately by a man growing up. There's no man in their home. They've never seen an alarm clock go off. Never heard an alarm clock go off and see a man get dressed and go to work. They've just never seen that. So who is your daughter going to marry? There's going to be somebody that's going to touch your daughter inappropriately in school, and they're, they're going to be wanting that. Women like the relationships more than we do. Guys are kind of emotionally retarded. Uh, if you put us all in a room uh, without a beer or a TV, we just stand there and grunt. What do you do? What do you do? All of says, what do you do? You put women in a room. Oh, tell me about your family. You know, do you have any children? They're, they'll be crying, hugging, mascara running. You know, they're just relating to each other. We don't do that. We don't. That's why we need sports and beer, things like that. Uh, we, we need to kind of get into that, okay? But, I mean, really, we're not good at the touchy-feely stuff, most of us. I mean, there are some people that are really good at touchy-feely, and I'm not really friends with them, but, but it's not... I mean, I'm speaking to guys. It's, it's not really your manly thing. But, I mean, there are people that are really good at relationships, guys, psych, guys psychologists, stuff like that. But we're not really good at that, and so, but we're good at our work. And so we come home, and there's a problem in the house. We just don't want to deal with it. So we turn on the TV, or we work just a little more. We're just not into that because we're not that good at it. Well, we need our daughters. We need our daughters to see that we care, that God cares for them and all of their problems and that he understands them, and he listens to them. We're not very good at listening, are we? God gave us twice as many ears as he did mouths. But we just don't like to listen because we want the bottom line. I remember coming home one day, and uh, I was, had worked all day, just really a long day, and my wife was a stay-at-home mom at that time. Now she makes more than me, which is fine with me. Uh, but I came home, and there were the kids. You know, They want to play hop on pop. They're at the door with her, and and she's ready to turn them over to me. Well, I, you know, I just got home from a hard day. I wanted to sit down and turn on the TV. And then she said, in the washing machine, you know, bro. Well, what had happened was it had drained, and I, I didn't realize the water from the washing machine has to go somewhere. And apparently it goes through a hose into the ground or something. But the hose had come loose, and so it had drained all over in the kitchen. And so she just wanted me to get all involved, and, in, you know, the, it made a mess. And, you know, and I said, honey, call the plumber. And I, you know... Well, she didn't want that. She did, I mean, she, eventually we were going to, but she wanted me to be involved in the situation. She wanted me to care in, in, in the struggles that are going on. And so often we just, I'm not good at that stuff, just handle it, but she needs us involved. You know, the sins of the fathers are visited on their children. But so our sons are looking at how we treat our wives. I don't care what we tell them. They're looking and seeing how we treat our wives. What kind of daughter is your son going to marry? You know, what kind of, uh, uh, what kind of uh, husband is your wife interested in? We need to set those patterns. When you fight with your wife and you have small kids, let them see it at some point because they need to know how to make up. We need to model these things for our kids, but we're never there at home. So that's the problem. Now, those of you, and there are a lot of you here, of course, kids are grown. You think, well, my parenting test is complete. No, Dr. Hendricks. Your task is not complete until you see what kind of parents your children turn out to be with their grandchildren. Um, And so your job, after your kids are grown, is to continue to be their their dad. 
but also spend some time with those grandchildren and work on those things. We have, I just tried a case last week, a Rhodes student raped by a police officer. I was shocked at the kids at Rhodes just every night. They're just drinking till 4 a.m. She was there at the home. She got raped, and uh, her two roommates were there in bed with their boyfriends. And I'm thinking, what are, what are people thinking? And so I talked to her, and she said, this is what we do. Uh, and my son is the new RUF minister at Rhodes, and he was meeting some people last week and said, well, let's meet at the bar. There's a bar in the middle of the Rhodes campus. For, they card you, you have to be 21, but there's a bar on, on campus. And I'm thinking, you know, things have changed. Uh, and of course, the Internet and all that, a lot of us, you know, we're behind on that. But we need to understand that we need to be dads, and, and that job never stops. Now, some of you are thinking, well, not only my dad, or, or maybe I don't have children. Or maybe, well, you know, I got divorced and she got the kids. You know, you need to start making, repairing those things. You need to make reparations. They brought those big elephants back in from somewhere else. Those young elephants didn't know them, but they were mentors for them. So you have a responsibility, number one, to your kids. And, and I started off this handout with a quote from Malachi on why we should have marriage. Why did God invent families? And it surprised me. I thought that God invented marriage so that I would have a sexual outlet, and also I would have a mom because I'd left my mom, and I would have a new mom, my wife, and I, you know, who's going to mother me if I don't have a marriage? Well, well, that's not why God invented marriage for me, and it says here, uh, you cover Malachi 2.13, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You're having problems with family or work, what, what's going on here? But you say, why... You know, why does he not? Why doesn't he honor my prayers? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Have you abandoned your wife for your, for your work or for your hobbies or for your amen Bible study or whatever you're going to do? Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was the one God seeking when he made marriage? Godly offspring, it says. Our whole goal in our marriage is to have godly children and to pass it on. Um, it's not like to make a lot of money or to make her proud of us or to be a, cut a big social swap. Our main purpose in life in spreading the gospel is first passing it on to our children and, and being godly children. We have, to, we have to mentor that for them. We have to work on that with them. And when we're not home, our studies show, although the government will not publish them, they won't talk about it, dad's not there, daughter just wants, she's looking for some guy to have sex with. She needs to be touched, she needs to be loved. All right? And we're not there hugging her, touching her, saying, honey, you're gonna, you can be whatever you want to be. You don't have to settle. You can be whatever you want. But we're not there because we're off doing other stuff, and our daughter, well, she's interested in ballet and stuff. We're not interested in that stuff. She's not going to watch football games with us on TV. So we kind of shy away from that. So I, I started, I, when I realized this was such a problem, I left private practice. And that's one of the reasons I went to the DA's office, because my children had been born, and I was the, the senior high youth guy here at our church, and all these kids were messing up and in trouble because their dads were gone. You know, I had a guy, uh, when I was in 11th grade, in 1968, we had this kid who turned 16, 
And he, his father, for his birthday, gave him a Camaro with a shaker hood. That's this little thing on the front of the car, you know, you see in these old movies. It was cool. That was what everybody wanted one of those. He's real excited about it. So he and two of his friends, on his 16th birthday, got drunk that night on a Tuesday night in Memphis during school, and they drove it off into the Mississippi River. So he got arrested, went to juvenile court. At 10 o'clock the next day, he was let out of juvenile court with a new Camaro with a shaker hood waiting for him with a note from his dad who was in Los Angeles saying, sorry, your birthday was ruined, here's a new car. That's not the way to raise your kids. He should have been there for his birthday if he could. And I understand, you know, there's conflicts and stuff like that. But his dad should have been there. And that kid, that you, you would recognize his name because it's a famous name from a famous family. He ended up killing himself. It's just not the way that we can parent. We need to make sure and have our priorities straight. Because the sins of the fathers are visited on their children and their children's children. So the things that I don't do right as a parent they're going to affect my great-grandchildren long after I'm gone because my son and my daughter are learning their skills from me. They're, not learn they're learning stuff from their mother, true, but they're learning their respect for authority, leadership, a lot of non-emotional things that you have to deal with. They're learning that from me, and if I'm not there, they're not learning it. So I put several verses in your handout to read at some point. Um, and also a book I want to suggest, um, when, when Eve was tempted, she was full of desire. Eve didn't have a dad because she was the first mom. And Adam was there the whole time, the scripture says, the whole time Satan was tempting Adam, I mean Eve, Adam was standing right there. And what did Adam do? Nothing. He just decided, I don't know, I don't want to handle that stuff you know, the apple, she says, it really looks good. I really desire it. And, you know, uh, I know, honey, we're going to get curtains for the den, but I think we should get window treatments. You know, they cost about five times as much as curtains. I don't really know the difference, but it's really expensive. And she wants all that, and she wants this. And you, you, you here you are, and, you know, you're only making so much money. you got some credit guard debt anyway, but you want some peace. When you come home at night, you want her to be lovey-dovey. So, okay, you know, just whatever you want. And, and we just kind of just bug because it's too, we don't want to make trouble. We don't want to rock the boat. Adam just didn't want to rock the boat. And there's this great book that I put in here for you by Larry Crabb, and it's called The Silence of Adam. And it's written for men about a lot of the stuff we can do that we don't understand we should do. Well, why should I do that? Just do it. Trust me. You know, you'll understand. Because a lot of times, because we're emotionally retarded, we don't really understand that. You know why men kill bugs? It's always the husband's job to kill the bugs. Because the wife is kind of compassionate. Well, I just don't know about killing that bug. We don't care. You know, let's kill the bug. We had a squirrel in our ran down our, our chimney one day, ran up into the easy chair. The squirrel was in there. And my wife was just, how are we going to get it out? Open the doors. And she was screaming. And the kids were going crazy. So I just went upstairs. To that. I got a bat. And I came down. And I was going to kill that squirrel. She said, oh, don't, don't get the squirrel with a bat. I mean, you know, it was just chaos in our house. So we finally got the squirrel out of the house. But they didn't know how to handle that. But, you know, I was going to just kill it with a bat. You know? Well, they have different ways of dealing with stuff like that. And, and we're not good at that stuff. We're not good at that relationship stuff. So, well, why not, I'll just stay at the office. Honey, you handle it. You know, and, and now that they work as well, the wives work as well as we do, and, and it, it, everything's complicated, and the whole world is saying, we don't really, you know, let's be metrosexual. 
you know, there's a book in California called Timmy Has Two Moms that they use in the school there about because some kids that have two moms instead of a mom and dad, they're affected by that. And so we have to make sure everybody knows that's normal and it's okay. Well, it's really not okay. But we're just allowing the world to say, we don't need dads. If you look at, on TV at uh, all the situation comedies, there's never a strong, loving dad in the home. It used to be like Marcus Welby, MD, you know. But now the guy is always usually... Uh, some drunk guy or ineffectual guy, and the woman wants sex all the time, and the guy just didn't really care. I mean, none of, it's re- is, none of it is ever really realistic. And In our children's books, Berenstain Bears books that the kids read, the father's always the idiot. You know, the, the world is getting rid of fathers. A lot of the creative people that create all our movies and entertainment stuff, they grew up, all our comedians, their stand-up comedians, none of them had normal homes. They never had dads in their home. And so... Slowly, we're letting everyone else take over all this stuff and teaching our kids and everything like that. So we need to be there. So those of you that already have raised your kids, your grandchildren are doing okay, you need to look around your church, whatever church you're in, this church or some other church. There are a lot of kids here that are children of divorce. There are kids that are hurting, and they need a role model. They need a dad. One of the reasons that our juvenile court works best the way it does is we have people that just spend one lunch a month with a kid. Changes the kid's life because they get to like, see, here's a a dad, and he actually works for a living. He actually does that. They don't get to see that much. And so some of you need to think about, first you look at your your church. You know, what kind of needs do we have? Do we have single moms? Now, if you've got a good marriage, your wife is not going to want you hanging around single moms and their kids. So you have to make sure and work all that out. Uh, You don't want to get caught in that kind of trap. But there are a lot of kids in our church and other churches that need... You know, they may have a man that's in the service or, or a guy that uh, they separated or a guy that died. Somebody's got to take care of those children. You know, our, our scripture says that, that uh, the pure religion undefiled is this, that we visit those in prison and widows and orphans. Well, these kids without dads in the home, they're, they're orphans. All they've got is their mom. And we have girls that unless they can have an appropriate relationship with a man, as soon as they get out from under home, they're going to have a relationship. They're going to have a baby because they can't take that relationship away from me. That's my child. You know, nobody's going to have an illegitimate child because of the $70 a month that you get. But they will because they they need that relationship. So we need to make sure that our daughters have appropriate relationships. Even if they're 50 years old, they need to call from their dad. And we need to know that our sons have somebody they can come to. I don't care if it's a financial problem or just to talk and rant and not be criticized for it, and just let you just be there and sit and listen. They need dads. We need to pull the big bulls back and just put them back in the herd. They don't need to have a big job. They just need to be there in the middle so that you can look over and you can see dad is there. Since dad is there, I know everything is going to be okay. Uh, I, I ended my handout on the last page with three quotes from Howard Hendricks. He died last year. He was one of my mentors. Um, first, he said, uh, he was Dallas Cowboys chaplain, for those of you that don't like this touchy-feely stuff, to give him some credibility. <laughs> get off your kid's back and get on his team. Okay? You're, unless your dad is on your team, you're not going to listen to him. He's not the quarterback. You, you, if you're going to listen to him, he's got to be on your team. You don't wanna, if he's on the other team, you don't want to listen to him. 
Secondly, you can impress from a distance, but you can only impact up close. You can't wait till your kid's 25 and start telling them what they did wrong growing up. You know that old verse in the Bible, uh, if you raise your child up when they're young, when they're old, they won't depart from it. The opposite is also true. If you don't raise your child when they grow up, they'll be messed up. And it's really hard to turn them around. Somebody like me will have to turn them around. And it's not just that they're going to commit crimes. They just won't do well in life. They won't have good marriages. They won't pay attention to their kids. They'll, they'll have credit card debt. Their priorities will be wrong. They'll just have a hard time making it. They just won't achieve. They'll start smoking marijuana. You know, things will just start happening. They'll look to other ways other because they won't have the self-confidence that they need because they can't look and see Dad there and know everything's okay. And the last comment, you cannot impart what you do not possess. You can't tell your kid, you know, lawyers never have wills, doctors smoke, it's that kind of thing. You can't listen to somebody that you know is not saying what they're actually doing. You know, you can't say respect your mom if you don't respect their mom. And they know that. So they need you there. They need those big bulls in the home. There's a psalm at some point you can read. I don't read it now. But a father's wise instruction, Proverbs 4. Chapter 4 is a proverb that was written. Just wise instructions from dad. Uh, there, in Psalm 1, if you look at Proverbs 1, the last half of the psalm deals with gangs. You know, God is real in this. He, he understands all these rules apply no matter what we do. But what we need to do is we need to realize that making a good living is not your first priority as a dad. It's to raise your kids and have godly offspring. Let's pray. Lord, it's so hard for me to talk to this group of guys when probably they've done a better job of parenting than I have. Or some of them may be have broken relationships. They may have lost their kids in a divorce or in a bitter fight. They don't come around at Christmas. They may not have children and they're wondering why they're here. Lord, show them the way back to these relationships and these children. Give some of them in their hearts this, the feeling to be big bulls and to come back and help those other young elephants that, that don't have any guidance. And help us, Lord, as we look at what our country and political correctness and our government is doing to the destruction of our family and to realize that you created our family for godly offspring and the world is trying to destroy our family. Just no meals together, no sitting around the newspaper, no programs we can all watch on TV, no healthy entertainment for families. No time, just no time for us to be together as a family and, and, and work out our issues, talk about our struggles with sin and with the world, and support each other in becoming more like Christ. Help us, Lord, to meet these needs at home, even though we'd rather it's more easy to meet needs at work or wherever else we are, because home is dawning to us, because we're guys. And we don't understand it the way our wives do. Help us to have the courage, Lord, to not be silent and to get involved. In Jesus' name, amen.